in roughly 20 years, the synthetic fuel goes from not really being economically competitive with anywhere on Earth to being economically competitive everywhere on Earth, which is crazy. How can it be that I could be operating a fuel plant in Denmark using solar power and it could be producing natural gas at a price that's competitive with importing it via pipeline from Russia? We expect actually global hydrocarbon consumption to kind of level off and then begin to decline in imminent future, but it's declining rather slowly. And there's still a very large legacy fleet of machinery and, and cars and so on that consume hydrocarbons. And it really wouldn't hurt us to find ways of displacing the fossil hydrocarbons that they will continue to consume. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. I am your host, Florian, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this brand new podcast, where we meet with the founders building the technologies to get us to net zero. We live in the defined decade for climate. We have until 2030 to halve our emissions. In scaling climate tech, we will understand how these incredible climate technologies work and if and how they can replace fossil solutions, not over the next century, but in the next 10 years. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we're having a discussion with Casey Henmer, co-founder of Terraform Industries. Terraform is an energy startup aiming to produce synthetic fuel by combining CO2 pulled out of the air and renewable hydrogen to replace fossil fuel extracted from the ground. Terraform Industries is at the forefront of three emerging climate technologies, direct air capture, green hydrogen production, and fuel synthesis, which we'll break down into this episode. Before Terraform, Casey earned his PhD in physics from Caltech, designed maglev systems at Hyperloop, and built GPS instruments at NASA. Founded in late 2021 and with 5 million in funding, Terraform has an incredible potential to revolutionize the way we think and use of fuels. Let's get started. Hello, Casey. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. Hi, it's good to be here. Very happy to have you here. It's going to be a, a bit of a more technical discussion than usual because of Terraform industry uh, products, uh, but I'm very excited about this conversation. We'll touch upon quite a few topics. We'll touch upon synthetic fuels or electrofuels. What are they? How do we produce them? What is their role in the energy transition? We'll understand where do they play as well in terms of end sector and how can they help decarbonize? We'll talk about your journey to get there, about Hyperloop, Na- NASA, and how these brought you to uh, a climate tech startup. And finally, we'll also understand what does it take to build uh, an asset-heavy company uh, where there's actual industrial facilities and and products being produced there. But before we go into all of this, uh, could you start by introducing yourself, Casey? Yeah, hi, my name is Casey Hanma. I guess my mom calls me Dr. Hanma because I have a PhD in theoretical physics, but I usually go by Casey. Can you tell me a bit more about you? Where did you grow up? And um, I know you work at, at NASA and Hyperloop. Did you have any early interest in climate or is that something that came later? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Australia in a reasonably rural area, or at least it was rural then. And um, I've always been you know, deeply interested in, in environmentalism and, and climate change, um, something I've been aware of since my earliest days, you know, way back in the very early 1990s. And it, it kind of blows my mind that it's 30 years later now and, and the problems are still you know, unsolved. And I think it's ultimately because they're, they're really hard to solve. But um, yeah, I finished school in, in Australia and went to college in Australia and uh, completed an undergraduate degree in, in physics and mathematics. Then I immigrated to the United States to do a PhD in theoretical physics. And um, after finishing that, decided I would uh, remain in the US and, and focus more on hardware development and, and uh, new technology development. So I 
I went to Hyperloop One and worked on levitation systems there for two and a half years. Uh, and then I went across to JPL, which is a, a NASA center, and, and worked there on flight software and, and uh, instrumentation and a few other bits and pieces for about four years before I eventually took the plunge and, and started this company. Super, super exciting. And how do you transition from an interest, it sounds like, in aeronautics or, or space and, and complex physics system to the company you're in today? And we'll talk more about that, but a synthetic fuel company. Where is the spark or the, the origin moment for that company? Yeah, I've always been interested in a, in a wide range of things, and I've been obsessed off and on for my entire adult life with finding a technological deus ex machina that would help us solve climate change. You know, specifying that one would be nice is a lot different from actually building one, but it was certainly something in my mind that you know, if the right idea came along, it would be you know, a good idea to kind of push on that. But then actually, one of my major hobbies, I guess, going back in almost 10 years now has also been speculating kind of quantitatively about building cities on Mars. I find the work that SpaceX does in this area deeply inspiring, as does many other people. And the way that I express my enthusiasm and inspiration for that is to you know, write a series of blog posts and books on the details of how one might go about actually building a city on Mars. And it turns out that if you wanted to have a self-sustaining industrial city civilization on Mars, you need a supply chain for all kinds of things. And I think it's, it's relatively straightforward to figure out how you might go about getting water or rocks or something on the surface. But our civilization is actually incredibly dependent also on, on hydrocarbons, and not just for combustion, not just for you know heating and um, engines and, and jets and turbines and things like that. Although, you know, Potentially on Mars, you would have other forms of electrical energy as a supply, but also uh, hydrocarbons are the you know the fundamental feedstock for essentially the entire chemicals industry, uh, which would be obviously extremely important on Mars. Not to mention you know plastics, paints, fertilizers, all kinds of other things. And as far as we know, on Mars there's there's not really any oil uh, to be had. So it seems unlikely that we'd be able to find oil uh, on Mars through conventional exploration like we do on Earth, which means that you know if we want to have the ability to make stuff on Mars, let alone refuel rockets and fly them back to Earth, uh, we need to figure out some way of, of making synthetic hydrocarbons on Mars. And, um, and so I kind of went in a little deeper than perhaps most people would on this problem, uh, you know, spreadsheets, calculations, simulations, textbooks, the whole bit, and eventually came to realize that that really the dominant cost to doing so is an extremely power hungry process would be electricity and electricity is hard to come by on mars as it is in many other places um and so it kind of comes down to how cheaply you can get electricity on mars is is you know a major factor of production in in how well uh, a mars economy can operate or how diversified a mars economy can become but you know at some at some point i was thinking deeply about this and also thinking about the fracking industry and a few other things and i was like yeah let's see if i can run those same numbers but with earth kind of assumptions for you know, supply chain availability and electricity and solar power and stuff like that. And um, and I very quickly realized that that actually creating synthetic hydrocarbons on Earth, the same way you would on Mars, uh, a couple of minor variations um, just to do with, with abundance of natural feedstocks, would be able to produce hydrocarbons at a price that was competitive with conventional exploration uh, on Earth, even taking into account the fact that, you know, in principle, you could make hydrocarbons anywhere on Earth that you have access to solar power and, and air, whereas uh, oil production strongly depends on being in, you know, Saudi Arabia or you know, South Texas or some other part of the world that happens to have copious uh, reserves of accessible oil. So it turns out that you know this process that may one day be the key or the under, key underlying feature of, of a, a Mars industrial economy um, may also end up being the key underlying feature of the Earth industrial economy by the time we get around to building the one on Mars. And so this was kind of the opening you know observation that then you know, I obviously had to go and check my numbers quite a lot. And I like to say I made the mistake of mentioning this to Patrick Collison, who's a family friend and and also deeply invested in in trying to help find solutions to the climate problem. 
and he strongly encouraged me to consider quitting JPL and, and eventually forced my hand by by funding this company uh, in the seed round. So um, along with some of his some of his colleagues. So yeah, it was, it was it was super neat to you know have that kind of vote of confidence and and then um, go forth and actually try and build build a damn thing in the real world and and bring it into you know out of the mind space and into reality. I appreciate the irony that you know one of the climate tech solution that we have on Earth actually came from Mars. At least the ideation comes from from a Mars uh, assessment. Could you just, before we talk in details about terraform industries, explain a bit more what synthetic fuels are uh, so that we, we really understand where that origin story comes from and like why were you looking at synthetic fuels? Now, I think this might be a, a good place to kind of dive into the weeds slightly and, and talk about kind of the difference between fossil fuels and hydrocarbons in a generic sense, which is to say that we know that burning fossil fuels is, is harming our climate and you know, potentially endangering the extent to which humanity can continue to survive on this planet in the future. And that, and that fact is broadly due to the fact that, that when we burn fossil fuels, we're transporting carbon that was previously locked up in the crust into the atmosphere where it then has a climatic forcing effect. But if it didn't, it wouldn't be such a big deal, right? It doesn't, it doesn't tend to cause like major climate trouble that we pull iron that was in the crust out of the crust and turn it into cars and boats and things. And, you know, it doesn't, cause an excess of carbon in the atmosphere, for example, to grow trees, cut them down and burn them uh, because the trees themselves grew from carbon that was in the air to begin with. I mean, like there are other, you know, deleterious environmental consequences associated with deforestation, but but at the very least, you know, pre-industrial societies were not causing an excess of, of CO2 in the atmosphere. But you know, the flip side of that is that is that hydrocarbons are actually a, a good thing, I would say, for human well-being in general, but for the fact that you know several centuries of their use is contributing to this problem that will ultimately drown our coastal cities and destroy our ability to grow enough food to feed ourselves. But in the short term, at least, you know, if you're an alien civilization trying to evaluate Earth from a distance, you would say that the countries that have access to hydrocarbons are doing quite well. The countries that have the ability to have a high per capita consumption of hydrocarbons are countries where people, by and large, enjoy good quality of life, long lifespan, uh, good economic opportunities, and the ability to you know, essentially have machines perform mechanical labor for them so they don't have to. And so it'd be really neat if we could find a way of keeping hydrocarbons cheap in the future and available, and if anything, expanding access to hydrocarbons to the parts of the world that do not have adequate hydrocarbon supply chains and where people still by and large get by by performing, you know, backbreaking mechanical labor all day long, where, you know, the economy is still relatively underdeveloped, uh, but at the same time found a way of turning down the tap of, uh, of carbon flowing from the crust into the atmosphere. And the way to do that is to find some other way of making hydrocarbons that does not involve taking carbon out of the crust. And that's where the synthetic, you know, atmospheric uh, CO2-based hydrocarbons come in. So just before we go into how you actually, you know, make a synthetic fuel, I would like to challenge you on what you just said. Like, a lot of climate people will disagree with that, that you do need, I mean, you can't disagree with the fact that hydrocarbon have played a major role in, you know, the energy transition and how our living standards have increased over the last 100 century. That is absolutely true. Now, I think where there will be a lot of challenges, whether we need them moving forward versus electrification versus hydrogen versus other form vectors of energy. And I think the answer to that is very sector specific, right? But could you help us navigate on why do you believe that hydrocarbons and hopefully you know, carbon neutral or synthetic fuel hydrocarbons still have a role to play in 2030, 20, I mean, 2030 for sure, but more, uh, more long-term 2050 and beyond? Yeah, I mean, so I guess the flip side is like, why do this when you could electrify instead? And I think actually that's, that's a kind of false dichotomy. And I think that, you know, us developing synthetic hydrocarbons won't slow down electrification. In any case, if we're able to deliver hydrocarbons at competitive prices because of the sheer inefficiency of our system, it would, it would imply that, that electric, you know, the price of raw electricity is, is you know, three or four or five times cheaper than, than it would be today. You know, if, if we're able to access and, 
and uh, and buffer its supply for 24 hours and you know have adequate batteries and stuff like that on the grid. And so my expectation going forward would be that we would continue to see electrification of building heat, cooking, uh, cooling, you know, obviously uh, computation data centers is largely electrified already, but also ground-based transportation. So you see like more battery-powered cars and trucks. However, I would also expect that um, large swaths of the economy will be relatively resistant to decarbonization uh, in the absence of, you know, kind of political miracles in a way. And so they would include, you know, ship and aviation, uh, transportation, uh, chemical synthesis, obviously, and then processes that require extremely intense industrial heat, including, you know, formation of silicon, uh, concrete, uh, or cement, I should say, uh, steel and other other kind of processes that currently consume, you know, I'd say like, if not double digit, then very high single digit percentages of our overall fuel and, and, and CO2 budget right now. And so I don't think it really hurts anyone to say, well, you know, we expect actually global hydrocarbon consumption to kind of level off and then begin to decline in imminent future. Um, but it's declining rather slowly. And there's still a very large legacy fleet of machinery and, and cars and so on that consume hydrocarbons. And it really wouldn't hurt us to find ways of uh, displacing the, the fossil hydrocarbons that they will continue to consume. Let me pause you there because I think there's so many topics to unpack. I will unpack the first one maybe, which you, you raised on what does synthetic fuel, where does synthetic fuel really play a role? And you know, you, you said electrification is absolutely uh, the go-to for non-hard to abate sectors, of course, buildings, of course, transportation. They have a key role to play here, uh, undebatable. The hard to decarbonize sectors, and you mentioned aviation, maritime shipping, certain industrial sectors, that is where uh, there is a specific role to play. I wanted to test, is that a role to play in a transition period in the sense that in 2050, synthetic fuel will have a role to play to accelerate decarbonization? Or is that a role to play, you think, on the long term where synthetic fuels are actually a long-term decarbonization solution that can compete effectively against, and I want to raise this one specifically, against hydrogen as a form of, of decarbonization? Yeah, I mean, because it's hard to predict the future, and in many ways we don't have to. That's what the market is for, right? The market tells us when it is economically advantageous for people to minimize their expenditure by using hydrogen or electrification or synthetic fuel or, or pre-existing fossil fuel or whatever. Look, as far as hydrogen is concerned, it doesn't keep me up at night. Um, I think that you know the idea behind hydrogen is is a nice one, but uh, it's deeply impractical. Um, every you know major effort that I know that has attempted to use hydrogen to displace an existing form of fuel has basically failed. Um, I think that you know hydrogen fuel cell cars, you know, were not competitive in 2008. I think Elon Musk was spot on back then when he pointed out that that uh, lithium ion batteries, even back then, uh, were were achieving better performance than than hydrogen fuel cells ever could. Um, I think that you know Hyundai and Toyota's doubling down on on hydrogen fuel cell cars has now been proven uh, conclusively to be the incorrect choice and will probably result in the severe damage, if not destruction, of those companies. Now, I mean, I'm I'm quite partial to hydrogen as a as a physicist and as a um, a Zeppelin in- enthusiast. But it's worth noting that that hydrogen as a fuel is is most compelling, I think, as an application of deep space transport for rockets. And even then, you know, very very few of the new space rocket companies are even bothering with hydrogen. Uh, NASA uses hydrogen for the SLS, and it has caused them no end of problems. And that's NASA we're talking about. Like they should know what they're doing when it comes to hydrogen. We just don't have, you know the expertise in the supply chain built out to transport uh, hydrogen safely. Uh, it's a huge cost imposition to to ask con- consumers to bear the cost of building out you know, national uh, hydrogen pipeline transportation infrastructure, especially given that we can take green hydrogen generated at the solar array and at the point of generation converted into natural gas, which is backwards compatible with existing distribution infrastructure that also gives us a way of of drawing down and using carbon that would otherwise be stuck in the atmosphere forever. I think ultimately, um, synthetic natural gas is a much better value prop uh, as an application of green hydrogen. That said, you know, one of the companies that I considered founding before this one was a, a sustainable electric aviation company. And I know several other companies that are also, several other 
people and companies that are focusing on, on luxury aviation. And it's certainly exciting and compelling for certain niche use cases. But the reality is if you can get, you know, liquid, low cost liquid fuels for planes, it's just, it's really, really hard to beat. Um, it's really, really hard to compete with that, except in, in certain niche cases. And so I would, I would expect to see like, um, robust and even increased like induced demand in that area because we'll have lower costs ultimately. And I think probably the same can be said for long distance uh, ocean transportation. Uh, I know that there are, you know, Maersk is looking into methanol and some other companies are looking into ammonia powered long distance ships. Uh, I don't think that's going to stick. Certainly it's it's a better alternative currently than high sulfur bunker fuel. But you know, once we have synthetic fuel in quantity, I don't see any reason why you would use that. Obviously rockets uh, are not going to be running electrically anytime soon. I think one thing that's underappreciated often, I was, I was looking recently at a map of the European gas network, is the amount of infrastructure, pipelines, storage, underwater pipelines, and existing asset base of, you know, can be boilers for buildings or, or industrial assets that already exist. And the amount of knowledge and investment that went in there, not to say, you know, we're, we're talking about building, I truly believe that building electrification is the way to go. But there is an existing amount of infrastructure and, and, and know-how and how to, to use this form of energy. It's a good time to actually delve into the technology. Um, we sure. talked about the, the role of synthetic fuel. And you touched upon it earlier when you mentioned whether you know, we should keep hydrogen in its current form or transform it into a synthetic fuel. So could you give us an overview of uh, the Terraform industry technology of, of how do you actually come to produce a synthetic fuel? Well... I don't know, which end do we start at? Let's start with, with solar electricity. So the sun, uh, you know, bombards the earth every day with, you know, copious supply of electricity, a copious supply of energy, rather. We can convert that energy into electricity using solar panels. Uh, we've gotten pretty damn good at making solar panels, but I like to say that we're still in our infancy as a species in terms of figuring out how to use silicon and what, it, what it's for. You know, sure, we've, we've made impressive counting machines and computers and, and our sol solar cells and a few other things, but we're still yet to make silicon, you know, sentient. So I think we're still at, at you know, at the early stages of, of that process. The cheapest electricity available on Earth today is the, the high voltage DC that comes out the end of a solar array during the day. You can't get any cheaper than that. We're not adding any additional cost to it. There's no inversion. There's no transmission. There's no nothing. Um, so it's low cost. That is where we want to be. That's where we want to operate. So we plug that high voltage DC uh, directly into an electrolyzer. The electrolyzer itself is optimized for uh, operation you know, only part of the day when the sun is up. It's optimized for low cost operation. It's optimized for uh, rapid return on investment. So it is a low cost, low electrical efficiency uh, electrolyzer. Well, that was a mouthful. And it generates hydrogen, you know, at a fairly steady clip during the day. That hydrogen, as we've discussed, is difficult to deal with and difficult to use. So that hydrogen gets piped into a reactor that, that transforms it into natural gas, where that hydrogen becomes the hydrogen that's in CH4. Uh, CH4 also needs a source of carbon. Uh, so we could use coal for that, but actually we would rather not. So instead, we're going to capture the CO2 from the air. This is the other half of the process. It's kind of a, a Y shape where you get uh, hydrogen from solar power and, and, and CO2 from the air and then combine them. So we have a, a large machine that is essentially a filter, essentially a carbon dioxide scrubber. It's not so different from a rebreather or a mechanism in a submarine or a spacecraft that, that scrubs CO2 out of a stream of air. Um, we have to process large volumes of air because the concentration of CO2 in the air is about one part in 2000. And the result of this process is that we end up with a, a stream of 95 plus percent pure uh, CO2 uh, coming out of our solvent regeneration kiln that goes into the reactor. And in terms of how our carbon dioxide scrubber system works, we use a solvent called um, lime, which is the decarbon dioxide version of uh, calcium carbonate, otherwise known as limestone, which is a, a very, very common rock 
uh, on the surface of the earth. Uh, typically, these are made of the uh, remains of ancient coral reefs and ancient bivalve reefs as well, depending on the period. So we can take this rock, which is uh, actually the primary ingredient of Portland cement, and we can calcinate it and then leave it in this tray, uh, blow air through it, and it reabsorbs CO2 over a period of a couple of days. Uh, and then once it's done, we put it back in the kiln, heat it up, and recalcinate it. The CO2 comes off. Uh, we capture the CO2 and pipe that into the reactor. The reactor itself is uh, sometimes known as a methanation reactor, sometimes as a Sabatier reactor. Um, it was discovered by Paul Sabatier and his collaborators uh, in the late 1890s. It was one of the first, uh, one of the oldest kind of old school catalysis reactions discovered. It's a high pressure, high temperature, uh, simple uh, metal catalysis, uh, not so different from the Haber-Bosch process that makes ammonia uh, that was discovered a few years later and it's subsequently commercialized at vast scale, whereas the Sabatier reaction has always been something of a curiosity. Uh, and, I mean, it has been used in, in commercial and industrial applications, but no, nowhere near the same scale as the Haber-Bosch process. And so this uh, this reactor uses, uh, there's actually a variety of different catalysts that one could use. We're using nickel, which is, again, the lowest cost, most basic catalyst. It does not need to have high performance. We do not need to achieve 99.99999% purity. Uh, we need to achieve a pipeline-grade uh, spec for natural gas, which is about, well, I mean, natural gas comes out of the ground. It has all kinds of crap in it. So it's not particularly difficult for us to do that. We have, you know, functioning prototypes of all of these, all three of these subsystems in our lab. And then, you know, the output of the reactor is, is water vapor and, and natural gas and a little bit of hydrogen. And we are able to, you know, separate out the water vapor and, and then the remainder is is good to go for a, for a natural gas plant. Uh, and then the whole point of the exercise is that we can build and operate the system for less per unit production than a fracking well. So that, you know, if a bunch of projects finance capitals, you know, wandering around trying to find uh, a way of spending that money to generate a stream of natural gas, that it would rather do it using our process, that is to say solar powered direct air capture uh, synthetic natural gas than to go and, you know, explore, drill a hole and suck out natural gas from under the ground. Super clear. Let me just replay that to make sure I understood the whole chain because there's, there's a lot of technologies involved here. You're producing green hydrogen from solar power in locations where uh, you know it is most economically viable. You capture carbon from the atmosphere through a, a direct air capture uh, machine, and then you combine them into a, a methanation reactor through the, the, the reaction you mentioned, the Sabatier reaction. Where I'd really like to understand is you're saying from a product finance capital, this is, this is more attractive. We hear a lot about direct air capture being a very expensive technology. Same thing for green hydrogen. There are subsidies in the US. That is not true everywhere. I'm not very familiar with the methanation reactor and how efficient is that reaction, but could you help us break down sort of the cost perspective of those efficiency and cost perspective of this reaction and put that in perspective to fracking or, or just extraction of, of natural gas uh, from, from the crust? Yeah, so actually, I'll just I'll just start by saying that like fracking is quite expensive, and actually, the fracking industry as a whole really experiences pain when the price of oil drops below about sixty bucks a barrel, and you know below fifty, it's it's really dire straits, and that works out to be around about eight or nine bucks per thousand cubic feet of natural gas or million BTU depending where you are, and actually, the, the price of natural gas has been quite a bit lower than that in the United States uh, for much of the last ten years, which is one of the reasons, uh, actually, the price of oil for that matter as well, which is one of the reasons why the fracking industry is is kind of in in, in dire straits as well itself. Yeah, you know, the cost of de developing these wells is, is only increasing. Their, their lifetime is, is decreasing. The amount of sophistication and complexity of developing these wells is increasing. Really, like we've been to a bunch of industry conferences and, and talked to people there and they're, you know, you can see the desperation in their eyes. You know, actually, as far as businesses go, um, you know, these are often kind of mar and pa shop type operations. They're mostly small companies. Their access to project finance capital is drying up as, as banks become more concerned with ESG. And it is, you know, it's pretty clear that you know, fracking has greatly increased, say, United States access to oil within its own formations, but it's not a hundred year kind of timeline thing. This is kind of a, a temporary Hail Mary type solution. 
Now, in terms of our process, there's actually a really neat thing here that I want to share with, with you and with the listeners here, which is that there's a very counterintuitive thing that goes on, which is that actually efficiency doesn't matter, or rather low efficiency is good, low electrical efficiency is good. And this seems crazy. It seems counterintuitive. However, it's true. And let me explain why. You're, you're quite right that direct air capture is expensive. Why is direct air capture expensive? Um, because the materials that people use to capture carbon dioxide from the air are very expensive. If you use amines or, uh, or zeolites or perhaps some metal organic framework or various other chemicals to capture uh, CO2 from the air, and then the process of, of regenerating those chemicals and, and extracting the CO2 is quite expensive as well. So what we came to understand here was that uh, we're taking a really strong bet that solar will get quite cheap, like probably around about 10 bucks per megawatt hour was where our process becomes extremely dangerous from an economics point of view. And that we actually see solar being you know, within striking distance of that cost today. Uh, and that's without any subsidies. And actually in the United States now we have you know, actually incredible subsidies, which, which really change the whole game for us. But even without subsidies, you know, we're dangerously close to it being, to being undeniable that, that we can outcompete these people. And so if you're sure that electricity is, is so cheap and getting cheaper and everything else is staying the same or getting more expensive, then how do you build a machine that captures upside of one of these fundamental factors of production getting cheaper? So if you thought the labor was going to get cheap, you'd find ways of saving costs by using labor. If you think that power is going to get cheap, electrical power, you save cost by finding ways to use more electricity. And so what is important to us is that the overall cost of gas production is low, which is to say that our capital efficiency is good. And in order to achieve that, our electrical efficiency is not so good. Another way of saying this is a lot of the problems that make direct air capture and green hydrogen production extremely expensive are soluble. That is to say they can be solved by using cheap electricity, by using lots and lots and lots of cheap electricity right? And this, this is intuitively obvious. A dual cycle heat pump is, is quite expensive in terms of its initial capital cost compared to you know an inexpensive air conditioning system or pure electrical resistance heater. But the idea is that if electricity is expensive over enough time, you save money. But if electricity is cheap and getting cheaper, then you probably just want to use a resistance heater to heat your house because it's so much cheaper, you can pay it off so much faster. And for us, it's really important that we're able to get our money out quickly because it needs to compete with a fracking well, which also gets its money out pretty quickly. Right. And we need to be able to free up that cash flow so we can continue to scale. Because if we're trying to scale, you know, two, three, four X per year, uh, it's really, really hard to do that if the money is coming out after 30 or 40 years, obviously. And for us, it's really important to scale up first. You know, for second or third generation systems, we can, we can backfill with, uh, with more reliable, longer duration, longer lifetime machines. Um, but in the first generation, I think it's just important to get machines on the ground and displace as much. Uh, fossil production as we can as quickly as we can essentially as cheaply as we possibly can and said in a different way where you, you just explained about the, the trade-off between a uh, capital expenditure and efficiency it's you know a system that's twice more expensive does not necessarily have twice higher efficiency and so in a world where my electricity is cheaper and potentially you know i don't have limited access to it as in the case of solar then it is worth going this trade-off of going with a cheaper system even though my efficiency is 50 lower If I am spending twice less for that capital expenditure, then I, I will be earning economically in the end. Is that a correct assessment? Yeah, that's exactly right. So just to kind of make this super concrete, uh, gains in efficiency hit like super diminishing returns, right? You can spend exponentially more on, on capital investment and really only achieve incremental improvements in efficiency. And sure, if you're paying 400 bucks per megawatt hour for electricity, then that might make sense over a long enough period of time. So say, for example, you wanted to build a synthetic gas plant that was based around a nuclear power plant. So say you develop a nuclear power plant in the Ruhr Valley in, in Germany, and then you want to hook all that power directly up to green hydrogen production, and then you capture CO2 or use coal or whatever and produce synthetic fuel. Then you know the major cost there is the nuclear power plant, and it's being amortized over 60 years. So you may as well you know, spend a bunch of money on electrical efficiency for your, for your electrolyzer and for the carbon capture system since 
you know, it kind of pales in comparison to what you're spending on the nuclear plant anyway. And because the total amount of energy you know that you're going to get is whatever the nuclear plant produces, you're not trying to scale up over time. And you know, the lifetime of the overall system is going to be 50 or 60 years, right? So that kind of makes sense that you would go all in on trying to improve efficiency. But if that's not the case, and actually you're just free scaling with a whole bunch of uh, additional solar just added all the time, then you want the complete opposite approach, which is you want to suck out as much cost as possible so you can get to the next generation system and double your production as quickly as you possibly can. Super clear. And so all of this costs electricity and capex, basically, if you're saying a green hydrogen, it's about investing in electrolyzers and, and a lot of energy, electricity to to power the electrolyzer. Carbon capture is the, the materials you referred to earlier and electricity. So the main variable here is the cost of solar energy per megawatt hour. What price of solar do you need to hit to have that, you know, $60 equivalent per barrel? So, you know, what is the dollar per megawatt hour of solar power so that the entire system in the, the end design of terraform industry would compete with the $60 per barrel? Yeah. So assuming that there are no subsidies one way or the other, I think we could, we could compete with 60 bucks a barrel at, at $10 per megawatt hour without too much difficulty, potentially even as high as 15, depending on you know, how we amortize the, the machines and, and you know, how long they last. Okay. Are you seeing today this $15 in certain location or are you seeing soon that $15 in certain location of the world for, for solar power? Yeah. I mean, I think we did $17 in, in California a few years ago. The solar price is, is, it kind of jumps around a little bit over time. There's, there's some bumps related to COVID, but overall the trend is, is quite clear. I mean, you can draw the trend going back to 1970, but frankly, what happened between 1970 and 1980 doesn't matter all that much now. Uh, what matters is what occurred in the last 10 years, which is that you know, 10 years ago, Germany was the, the number one solar power manufacturer on earth, and, and everyone was pretty much sure that solar was never going to get any cheaper, that that all the German engineers had taken a good crack at it, and they'd, they'd sucked out as much cost as they possibly could. And in many ways, Germany is, you know, was, was at the time the absolute world leader in terms of technology. And everyone was predicting, well, you know, we might get, you know, another 20% cost reduction between now and 2100 or something. Well, we know what happened, right? Since then, the cost has dropped by another factor of 20, right? Like 95% decosting since uh, 2012. And production has doubled every every three years, roughly. Actually, slightly less than that on average. And so looking forward, we'd say, well, what would we expect to see if this trend was to continue, right? We'd expect to see that the total addressable market for solar is increasing. I think that's true, right? You know, like, like more and more countries are finding that solar is competitive with baseload production. We'd expect to see continued explosive growth in battery production, which is necessary to, to shift what's called load shift into the evening. And we're seeing, you know, 250% per year growth in investment in batteries. That's been fairly consistent for the last five years. Uh, which is itself staggering. We'd expect to see long-range expansions in productivity of manufacturing of solar panels all over the world, which we certainly see just in the last six months. We've seen announcements across the United States for uh, doubling and tripling of the capacity of various plants. Uh, the Hanwha plant comes to mind, but you know several others have also uh, made the news. So we're talking about increasing domestic U.S. solar panel production capacity from about eight gigawatts per year, which is now to you know probably I think twenty-ish has been announced. Uh, we'd also expect to see announcements of, of expansion of production capacity for polysilicon, which is the primary kind of precursor component for solar cells. And right now, you know, uh, say last year, the, the world produced about 200 gigawatts of, of solar panels. Uh, and we, we see more than a terawatt of additional uh, polysilicon production in the pipeline to come online by 2027 at the latest. And that's just what's been announced in the last, you know, three to six months. So I'm actually extremely, extremely optimistic and bullish that actually the factors that are causing explosive growth of solar and also a similar reduction in, in cost are actually only accelerating. And you know, not that the market is saturating and the the, the improvements that it, the easy gains have kind of been done and we're done. Like, like there are more people, more you know, 10 times as many brilliant 
process engineers working on solar than ever before. There's, the market is larger than ever before. The, the, the profits are larger than ever before. The overall industry is growing at a faster pace than ever before. I think that it's highly likely that, that we will, in 10 years' time, look back. And once again, even me and my colleagues who are pretty bullish on solar, literally building our entire business around an assumption that solar decosts faster than anyone else thinks, will look pessimistic in, in, uh, in retrospect, just as we do now compared to our views 10 years ago. Yeah, I think it's one of the amazing things of technology that we consistently underestimate the rate of evolution of technology. If we, we just go back on, you know, projection 2015, 2016, we keep misestimating the, the rate of deployment and the rate of improvement of, of solar power, of EVs, of all the major climate technologies. Yeah. Well, I mean, not everyone completely missed it, but a lot of the so-called adult supervision did. But, you know, the fact that you say, well, I, I, I don't know exactly what the number will be. But I would expect it to continue to improve if factor A's, B, and C were present, and they are present, which is to say, you know, exploding demand and and exploding investment. And, you know, that, that all points in the right direction. Terraform Industries is agnostic of the location of production. I mean, you're producing natural gas at this ex- leverage existing infrastructure of transport, and, and we know these are transported internationally. So h- how do you think of the main areas that would benefit from this system, obviously the, the very uh, the, the areas that have a lot of sun, I can think of Australia, of California, and so on, and the link with policies, because the most interesting location for terraform industries are probably this combination of the best natural resource in the form of, of, of sun and a lot of land, and the availability of policies like like we have in the U.S. and to a lesser extent in Australia. Well, I think as far as policy goes, the problem will solve itself because there isn't a single polity on Earth that doesn't want cheaper access to hydrocarbons, right? So once the technology is proven, you know, it's a relatively straightforward problem to, you know, smooth out permitting for this kind of operation, especially given just how minimal its impact on the environment is. Yes, we're going to cover a lot of the Earth's surface with solar panels, but covering something with solar panels is, is actually pretty benign compared to like plowing it or digging it up or, you know, building a city on top of it. So I'm relatively optimistic about that. And then in terms of siting, it's actually like the second or the other, I would say the other major uh, counterintuitive thing, which I think is really neat about this, is that the best place to build your solar panels or your synthetic fuel plant is as close as possible to the consumer as you can manage, because then you can avoid cost of transport of the fuel. And we all know that you know gas pipelines and, and electricity transmission lines and so on take decades to pay off because you know basically slim margins. But meanwhile, if the cost of solar continues to drop, then the cost of local production will continue to drop, which means that you know the relative advantage you enjoy from importing even a relatively short distance will go away. Which is to say that like long distance transmission pipelines and, and, and electricity power lines will become stranded assets. So this is kind of a radical point of view, but I think, it, I think it's true. And we ran the math here a few months ago, which is to say I wrote some computer code to simulate what would happen looking at, at the entire surface of the world by um, you know, insulation, which is to say like uh, the amount of sunlight it gets, population density. And then like local prices for hydrocarbons, which vary quite quite dramatically depending on you know how well developed infrastructure is for for transporting it there, how local it is, whether you're in you know Saudi Arabia's good books or not. And what I found was that you know even though there's a handful of places that are exceptionally sunny and where fuel is quite expensive, where there's a large population where where you know we'd have initial market you know share, if solar continues to decost by you know ten or twelve percent per year, actually you know four billion people come into the addressable market in nine years. And the remaining 4 billion people within like 12 years after that. So in you know, roughly 20 years, the synthetic fuel goes from not really being economically competitive with anywhere on earth uh, to being economically competitive everywhere on earth, which is crazy, right? How can it be that, you know, I could be operating a fuel plant in Denmark using solar power 
and it could be producing natural gas at a price that's competitive with importing it via pipeline from Russia, assuming Russia was not currently being a huge asshole. And the way to think about this is that there's actually sunlight everywhere on earth that people live. And yes, there's more sunlight in Southern California than Denmark, but only by about a factor of two. And yes, there's more seasonal variation in Denmark than in Southern California, but natural gas is not that hard to store, at least compared to electricity and batteries. And it's certainly not hard to store if you convert it to a liquid form and you know, just fill up a tank with it. So instead, we have to ask ourselves, you know, given a factor of two or three or whatever, let's just pick two as a number between the solar abundance in, say, Northern Europe and Southern California, how many years of additional solar development is necessary to cover that gap? Well, if you if you decost solar by 10% per year, after eight years, it's as cheap in Denmark as it is in Southern California. I mean, in Southern California, it's still relatively cheaper. But if you know, if, let's say in Southern California, we can break even on cost in 2026 in general, general production with no subsidies, right? Then by 2034, which is not that far away, you could do exactly the same thing in Denmark, assuming that Denmark had access to natural gas at the same price as Southern California, which is frankly dreamland as far as Denmark is concerned. Europeans pay almost you know six times more for natural gas than, than we do in the United States, which is to say that you know because of the relative cost differential, it might be more worthwhile to make solar-powered natural gas in Europe right now than Southern California, even though it's relatively cloudy in, in parts of Europe. So the, the missing piece there is actually not not the market opportunity. The missing piece is is the solar panels themselves, and we have to ask ourselves: you know, the Germans are so good at making solar panels ten years ago, what, why aren't they making them now? When Europe desperately needs about fifteen terawatts of, of of solar electricity capacity in order to in order to feed itself and not depend on on Russia and and other imports, which are you know increasingly fractious and, and difficult and expensive, and I really have to wonder that. So for your listeners that are in Europe, call up your representatives and ask them when they're going to get their act together about you know ensuring production of copious quantities of solar panels within the European uh, system itself, uh, because you know sure it's, it'll be expensive to roll it out, but it actually be cheaper overall. I mean currently Europe spends more than a billion dollars a day. On imported natural gas from Russia, so it'll be cheaper overall than than that to to roll this out. And after after you know a five or six year ramp up period that is necessary to to reach that level of production, uh, Europe will have energy independence forever. It will no longer depend on you know Saudi Arabia being friends, or no longer depend on Russia deciding to be reasonable that day. You know if if you're able to produce fuel within your own borders, you don't have to depend on foreign policy you don't control to keep your citizens from freezing to death in winter. And I do not understand for the life of me why this has not been done already. It just seems so freaking obvious, but you know, here we are. I'm sure you've written some you know, computer code to, to test this. What is the land availability? Like the US is really big, there's a lot of empty land. Europe, yeah. uh, that is not as true. So you, you take the example of Denmark, which is you know, a very small country, especially if we use uh, you know, low efficiency systems uh, that by definition require more energy to, to get to the same outcome. Is there geographies where that approach would not make sense, or at least it wouldn't make sense domestically, and it would be something imported from an area with more land availability? Yeah, maybe a handful of places. So I, last time I read the numbers, I thought if you're, if you're further north than, than Scotland, you're probably in trouble as far as using solar power to generate synthetic fuels goes. But the actual number of humans who live further north than like 55 degrees north is a vanishingly small number. They mostly have access to oil from the North Sea anyway. They mostly have access to extremely enviable wind power resources. It's actually worth noting that large-scale wind turbines deployed in the North Sea generate more energy per footprint than uh, oil wells of the same size you know, on floating platforms or per dollar invested, which is kind of neat. But yeah, in terms of, in terms of Europe, for example, I said you need about 15 terawatts of the solar electricity generation, which is a large number. I mean, to put that in perspective, humanity currently generates about 12 terawatts of electricity. Um, so you need you know, more than double that just in solar power. That would cover an area roughly equivalent to Belgium. Now, Belgium is not a huge place. Uh, you cut Belgium up into a thousand pieces and then uh, spread it all across 
particularly Southern Europe, and it is you know barely even noticeable. Like you wouldn't even notice it from space. Now, compared to United States, which has many large deserts uh, and other parts of the world, Europe is not known for its deserts, right? But uh, more than twenty percent of of Europe's land area is is not forested and is not agricultural land and is not cities. It's it's essentially arid or untilled land. It may not be completely arid, but it's it's low quality land. And that is you know, way, way, way more than is needed to do synthetic fuel, a synthetic fuel supply chain for the entire continent. Um, globally speaking, we could produce uh, enough synthetic fuel to provide everyone on Earth with fuel at US levels of consumption, like US average levels of consumption, uh, with about 400 terawatts of electricity, which would cover something like one seventh of the world's deserts, which is actually a rather large number. You know, like that is uh, several digit percentage of the Earth's land surface area. But again, it is significantly less than the, the fraction of the Earth's land surface that is used for agriculture. It is significantly less than the fraction of the Earth's surface that's used for forestry, obviously much less than is used for, for grazing or row crops individually. And it's actually only incrementally more than is currently urbanized. So in some sense, you could simply pave solar panels over the top of all the roofs in all the cities on Earth, and, and what's left over would be about that again, uh, you know, immediately outside the cities. And, and that problem is solved forever, which... It seems surprising that people haven't got around to this yet, um, or haven't come around to this. But I guess, you know, the implications that are necessary to, for this to make sense have only become you know, relatively obvious quite recently. Casey, you have half the world as an addressable market in a few years, and you have a solution which is economically viable to replace fossil fuel, given continued decrease in solar cost has done over the last years. You started this company in 2021. How do you get started on on such a big project where you have you know three major technological components, the hydrogen production, the direct air capture, and the actual synthetic fuel production. You know, I, I have no idea, like, how does that look like? Do you need to build a massive facility or can you actually start a lab scale? And what are the kind of skills that, that you need to test this idea? Yeah, so I was actually doing kind of lab scale experiments in my garage at home for about a year before I started the company. I uh, just kind of experimenting with ideas and seeing what would happen. Uh, you know, we're mostly locked down because of COVID and I have two young children and, and I was working a full-time job. And so in my copious free time, I would hide in the garage and, and try and blow myself up. So I, I did I did um, electrolysis and I did carbon capture experimentation. I did not do the Sabatia reaction in my own garage, although we've done that since here. My initial idea was to kind of prove out these ideas, write some papers, do some preliminary designs and open source it, let someone else do the hard work. But I kind of eventually became convinced that, you know, actually uh, a startup, you know, business was a pretty good vehicle for bringing about change in the world. And in particular, because I thought that the way that I wanted to do things was not necessarily universally accepted. And so I needed to actually like pay people to do things, you know, for the company. And it's really hard to do that without funding and without payroll. So I kind of had to start the business and do it itself. And then in terms of, you know, what do you, what do you get done? Well, it's just like eating an elephant. You kind of one spit at a time. I kind of compiled a list about 30 items long of, of technical milestones. And, and we started with the easy ones and worked our way down. And, um, you know, I'd say we're about, about a third of the way through that list at this point. And I don't think we'll get to the end of the list for another five or six or 10 years, but but you know, you've got to start somewhere and, and just kind of look at where you're at and what you need and, and go and you know, recruit people. And we got this building here in, in Burbank and and um, and got it set up and you know, found a team and got them motivated and and uh, you know, did a lot of did a lot of talking. So it's um it's it's an interesting process. I I spent an awful lot of time not doing technical stuff, which is kind of what I started out doing on this project. But you know, I've always kind of seen leadership as a as a calling to service, uh, and so if a solution needs to be solved, you know, a problem needs to be solved, then it's my job to solve it. Let's go go and do it. What are the big technological blocks you're missing today? Because the green hydrogen production that is something commercially available, not in the form that you're you're seeking. I understand you're trying to make something cheaper, lower efficiency. 
the direct air capture, I think the challenge is the same, right? It is commercial, but not in the kind of machine efficiency to CapEx ratio you're looking at. And the, the Sabatier reaction, you said this is something that hasn't been as, as developed. So can you give me a sense of what are the big technological unlocks you, you still need to prove? Well, on the technological front, I, I'd say we're 95% of the way there. We have you know working subscale prototypes of all the key pieces. Um, we're looking for ways of doing some of them better, some of them cheaper, and then ways to integrate them together in ways that you know will not frustrate us too much. But the, you know, the, there's centuries in some cases of precedent, you know, industrial precedent for forming operations like this, and I just don't think it'll be all that hard in the grand scheme of things. Yes, on a day-to-day basis, you know, some of us are banging our head against the wall trying to figure out how to do something. But you know, it's been done before. It's not physically impossible. It's not even particularly cutting edge to do this sort of thing. Uh, you know, we have team members who've, who've worked on all kinds of you know advanced technology development projects. They kind of know how it goes. They know that you know some day, some weeks it's just not your week. But they've also you know delivered systems that are in some ways uh, incredibly revolutionary compared to what came before. And what we're doing here is not particularly revolutionary in terms of the mechanics and machinery. What we're actually doing, the hard part for us where we intend to focus our efforts is on scaling. Right, it's on getting the costs down and the production numbers up because it's it's one thing to build an integrated prototype sometime early next year, turn it on, and be like, oh, we're amazing, quick tweet it, aren't we famous? But it's quite another to say, okay, now we now we actually like you know grit our teeth and, and go and build three thousand factories, each of which will produce ten thousand of these per year, and actually like stay in business while we're doing that. So that's like kind of the the long long term problem that we are thinking about. Yeah, and it's a beautiful challenge, right? Jumping ahead on once you'll have that product or the prototype ready. What will be the role of Terraform industry? Is it to own those assets? Or are you actually a technology provider where other, uh, it can be oil and gas players or whoever has as you know project finance resources would build these and the role of Terraform is to design and, and, and provide a technology? Yeah, we see a bit of both on that front. Our initial plan actually was to focus on manufacturing and then, and then lease or sell them to operators uh, in the field. But yeah, we kind of uh, alter that business model to take advantage of, of the new Inflation Reduction Act subsidies that came down uh, in the United States, which make it significantly much more worth our while to stay in business uh, operating the gas plants ourselves. So, I mean, ultimately, we will find a way of, of transferring that value to ourselves, even through third-party operators, right? You know, like if a third-party operator can make so much damn money producing these things, then, you know, we can obviously lease them for more. But in, in the in the short period, the short term, we may as well run them ourselves. The, the margin is high enough to justify our effort doing that. So that's kind of where we see ourselves on that project. Why do the other oil and gas players or the car manufacturers, why haven't they looked at this technology? It sounds like it's right into the alley, right? If I'm a big corporation producing oil and gas today, and this sounds so much easier than rehauling my entire portfolio towards renewable and exiting oil and gas. Is it something they've been looking at? Is it something they that is too far from their expertise? Why isn't it something they address today? Yeah, well, I think it's important to remember that the existing oil and gas industry is extremely fragmented. So like largest company oil and gas company in the world is Saudi Aramco, which has about 5% market share. And actually, a lot of the innovative engineering work is done by kind of small development shops. And actually, I should also state that there are, I have a couple of like moral competitors, which is to say like other companies that are also doing synthetic fuel from direct air capture carbon dioxide one way or another. And some of their investors come from some of these companies. So like, it's certainly on their radar. I should probably also state that the most prominent uh, effort to do synthetic fuel, like direct air capture synthetic fuel maybe 10 years ago was it was a european project that siemens uh was like the major operator of and siemens is an is a, you know enormous engineering epc contractor that does all this kind of work so i would expect to see you know uh sustained interest and effort on that front the major constraint i would say for existing incumbents in this space is they're not really set up to bet the entire company on like a narrow r&d effort which is essentially where we are they face what's called the innovators dilemma which is one of the reasons why for example 
Tesla's competitors have not really been able to field a competitive electric car. And actually, it's one of the major reasons why we kind of continue to have innovation in our economy. Hmm. Makes sense. And so beyond the technological constraints, let's project ourselves. Once you have cost competitiveness versus fracking barrels, for instance, what are the barriers to scaling? Because the infrastructure is there. The legacy machines that can use oil or gas are there. What are the main barriers for you to scale to move from the one system, and I don't know if that's in one year or five years, as you said, uh, that would be ready by Terraform Industries, to a hundred or a thousand system that you would need to really have an impact in terms of climate impact? Yeah, I think we need to get to more than 100 million machines to see major climate impact. Okay. So just to put that in perspective, and the major constraint to getting to that scale will actually be solar panel manufacturing rate. So like about an hour ago, I guess we were talking about solar panel production and cost curves and you know current signs that that's moving in the right direction, and it certainly is. Uh, but it's going to have to continue moving aggressively in that direction for about another decade to reach production levels that are adequate to service 100 million megawatts of electrical production serving natural gas, uh, serving synthetic fuel. And kind of the tragic thing is that we'll almost certainly be in a situation where we've reached, like, say, cost break even in a, in a, in a large and, and useful market. Uh, but we will not, we'll be so production constrained on solar panels that we won't be able to serve that market for a number of years. And if that number of years is like 12 years, that's 12 years of carbon emissions that we could have abated that we are unable to because of inadequate supply of, of, uh, of solar panels. I think in practice, it might be more like three or four years, uh, which is certainly a lot better than 12 years but it is we'll certainly be putting plenty of like pricing blood in the water as far as like you know increased production we will pay increased production we will pay but actually it may, may be the case in, in in five or ten years time that the terraform also has to vertically integrate in panel manufacturing and cell manufacturing and heaven forbid uh polysilicon manufacturing but you know it may be the case that if terraform industries and its potential competitors are consuming four-fifths of the global supply of uh solar panels then it, would, it may, may well make sense for us to verticalize in the industry as well so 100 million is definitely a different order of magnitude than what I had in mind. Why is that such a huge number? And I'm trying to think specifically of, of the number of oil and gas wells in the world. I mean, they're all size of wells, right? But yeah. major wells, there's not that many of them. Uh, so is it because the terraform industry system would be a smaller system rather than having like a massive system that would you know serve the entire California state, for instance? But what is the rationale for that 100 million number? Well, you can take 50 uh, gigatons of CO2 per year and then each of our each of our units captures I don't know like approximately ten tons of CO two per year something like that and kind of run the math on that and how many units you'd need to close that off so it's um, I think that works out to four hundred million machines so fifty billion is a very large number the upshot of that is that you know, each machine produces enough hydrocarbons for you know fifteen or twenty or thirty people uh, depending on on where you are in the world and what the season is uh, which is not a huge number but then again each machine itself is uh, consumes roughly five acres of of space it's not enormous you know like five acres is about 150 meters by 150 meters and that 20 people's worth so you know it's actually a significantly smaller area overall than what you need to grow food for 20 people and although obviously uh, if you're just producing for ele pure electricity for electrification it's it's somewhat less than that because our process is you know something like 30 percent efficient but it just turns out that you know if you want to enjoy a quality of life that you and i enjoy then we need to uh, per capita consumption of energy is about 100 times higher than our per capita consumption of, of food and of like energy in the form of food which is, you know, and it's kind of different ways of intuitively looking at it. One of my favorite is that uh, pre-industrial societies are kind of limited in, in terms of the mechanical work output by by the digestive capacity of the people and the and the, uh, the beasts of burden, you know, the, the the work animals that live in that society. Actually, it's mostly, particularly in the poorer ones, it's mostly human labor. And you know, there's only there's only so many you know cranks you can crank by hand or by foot per day. Whereas if you have the ability to dispatch a hundred times that energy, 
thanks to you know electricity and, and fossil fuels and cars and things, you know you can you can enjoy a quality of life actually markedly better than than say you know a medieval lord who has a hundred serfs uh, working for them, uh, despite the fact that you know they they're obviously the beneficiary of a lot of that labor, and it just works out to a very large number. Yeah. I want to conclude on a, on a higher level note, just to have your perspective on this. You touched upon it earlier on aviation and the ability to, you know, continue the industry of aviation and, and scaling that industry to more people that they can access it. I think that touches upon almost a philosophical point in the climate um, ecosystem on do we have, a you know, the next coming decades, a decade of abundance of energy where we are able to maintain our standards of living or or keep improving them? including in industries that are very energy intensive, like aviation, or are we going towards, you know, a world where there's a limitation on certain of our activities and definitely transportation and aviation would be some of them. And I think there's a bit of a difference specifically between the US philosophy and the European philosophy on this, where a lot of Europeans are increasingly leaning towards the reduction piece as a way to, to decarbonize. And in the US, I'm hearing more and more this notion that, it, you know, technology to reform industry is one of those technologies or other industries can be a way to maintain this way of living. So I just want to put this on the table. I, mm. I, I know which way you will go, uh, but I, I would be interested to have your perspective on this, this more philosophical perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's 2022. You and I enjoy a good quality of life because we're beneficiaries of, you know, incredible investments of time and effort by our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on generation that took you know, horrible problems of, you know, just wrenching scarcity. I mean, the children starving to death kind of stuff. And they they used the technology by our standards relatively primitive of the time to solve those problems, right? We solved food scarcity. We solved water scarcity in much of the world. You know, California would not exist in its present form without incredible canals bringing water. They were built without electricity in many cases, you know, like primitive forms of dynamite, and they, yet they did it, right? And for generations, it was enough, but it's not enough anymore because of climate change. And so I really feel that we have no excuse with our wealth and with our technology to endure scarcity, it's kind of it's morally questionable in my in my in, in a sense because it it undermines the the sacrifices and and you know the forward thinking uh, legacy that that our ancestors have left us uh, in these places and it really is a, it really is a choice. But if we can choose scarcity, we can also choose abundance. And I actually think that we we have already chosen abundance. We're we're, we're getting there by hook or by crook. I think that you know in certain places you know policy needs to do a bit of catching up, particularly in permitting reform within you know the old world of of Europe and, and United States and potentially Australia and a few other places where. Essentially, governments have lost the ability to make decisions quickly, which I think is a, is a real real challenge and a real problem, even if it's like an obvious choice that should, should be made and, and the costs of making the choice are low and the costs of reversing the choice are low. It still takes years to make a decision, which is just stupid. But you know, one of the reasons why you know, the economy is doing things we don't fully understand. So for example, you know, this is debate, is the United States in recession? Well, maybe, but like, you know, uh, unemployment is incredibly low. Um, inflation is high, relatively. Unemployment is quite low. Capital availability seems to be a bit volatile. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that we are currently 10 years into a 30-year transition. Uh, energy, you know, in terms of like the way that our civilization um, generates and dispatches and uses energy. And most people haven't really tweaked to that, but we're still in the early stages. We're in 10 years in. But this is, this is an industrial revolution we're talking about. By some counts, it's the fifth major industrial revolution. Um, and I think that in retrospect, it will be the, the greatest of the five so far by far. You know, like the Brits figuring out how to burn coal to make steam engines is like pretty grand, but in the grand scheme of things, it's nowhere near as exciting as us converting, you know, 5% of Earth's land surface area to a, a doped a semiconductor that is able to almost flawlessly and losslessly convert solar energy that's been pouring down on our planet for 5 billion years into usable high-grade energy in the form of electricity, which we can then use to create, you know, abundant fossil fuels for a tiny, tiny cost compared to the current costs we endure with, you know, oil tankers and drilling and, and environmental degradation and all the rest. 
What is next for Terraform Industries in the next you know, two, three years? Where are you seeing Terraform Industry go? Yeah, for sure. So right now we're in the process of raising Series A, which is you know equity funding to continue to fund our development operations. We've we've kind of set out with the seed round to de-risk technology. Uh, and now we're you know working towards completion of the, the engineering prototype sometime early next year. And then shortly thereafter we'll be expanding production, build out a pilot plant, demonstrate you know the technology at, at scale and, and make it bankable. So it's one thing to make it work, it's another thing to make it work reliably enough that you can actually borrow money against it. And then you know proceeding with debt financing to to build uh, as many factories uh, to produce these things and to roll them out as we can. Roughly speaking, each factory will produce uh, 10 gigawatts of additional capacity per year. So it may take us you know, a small number of dozens of factories or something to get close to the, the ultimate ceiling of, of a solar panel availability. But the thing is, as I kind of explained to you before, we are already behind and will continue to be behind you know, markets where we are able to uh, displace existing production or importation. And so we will simply be kind of you know drawing up a list and then ranking it by by market opportunity and then just executing in a very forward, aggressive way to go as quickly as we can to deploy our technology and, and, and get it in the hands of consumers that really desperately need a way of accessing usable chemical energy that doesn't you know, destroy the world for their children, grandchildren. Could you share one useful resource that you've come across on, on synthetic fuels, direct air capture or hydrogen uh, for everyone to get, uh, to get smarter about those topics? Hmm, that is a good question. Well, I should say we have a couple of blogs that we've written that are accessible through our website, extremely high quality website, that kind of explain where we're coming from here. Synthetic Fuels, I guess I mean, one of our competitors, uh, say friendly competitors, Prometheus Fuels, they have a beautiful website that kind of describes much the same things that we do. Their chemical press is a little bit different, but you know, the inputs and outputs are pretty much the same. And so you know you can check that out. It's uh, certainly easy on the eyes and learn about how their process works. I think your, your heart, Casey, on your website, it, it has a different style, I would say. Um, for a terraform industry, but it, it does look nice as well. well thank you. <laughs> I, I, I do recommend checking it out. <laughs> yeah, well, so it's a challenge with the website, and and maybe some of your listeners can can uh, help us understand this. But um, you know, obviously, like people with technical background are like, oh, this is awesome. This is like old school internet before you know it was ruined by Facebook and Twitter and everything. Everything, you know, it kind of it harkens back to a time when they were kids and, and learning learning how to write Linux through the man pages and things, which is you know really exciting for a lot of people. But at the same time, like. You know, we need to project an air of seriousness and confidence that, frankly, a, a shitty monospace website doesn't necessarily carry. So, you know, when it comes to recruiting, for example, people look us up and they're like, huh? Yeah, they might not get it. Or like recruiters, for example, like people uh, work in universities with recruiting don't understand. Sometimes uh, funders and, and you know, potential suppliers and contractors and so on look at it and they're like, is this even a real thing? It looks like a joke. So we need to do like right at the top, like this is not a joke or something so that like it's clear that it's not a joke. I don't know. There's so many topics I would still love to delve on that you've raised. I'm conscious of time as well. And I'll put in the links, the amazing blog resource you're writing, where you actually, uh, you know, detail the calculation and, and, and put some numbers on all of those, those topics. So I definitely advise everyone to, to check those out. It's been, it's been fantastic discussing together. Very inspiring. Thank you so much for, for sharing all, all this detail with us and uh, really wishing you the best for, uh, for the coming month and year with, with Terraform Industries. Well, thank you so much, uh, Florian, for having me on your show. And, um, you know, to all your listeners, I guess, like, you know, figure out how to do something and then go and do it. Congratulations, you finished this episode. Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you liked it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. This is really helpful to be more visible in the rankings and to be able to keep inviting the best of climate tech entrepreneurs in this show. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you on our next episode very soon. Bye.